ideas, people, and practices that stretch our sense of what is possible, have made me possible, and create possibilities for all of us. Thank you all for joining us for this episode. I'm recording this intro on Saturday, June 13th, 2020. And just this morning, news came out of true black trans women uh, being killed this week. Dominique Remy Felds of Philadelphia and Rhea Melton of Liberty Township, Ohio. In the last few weeks, we have gotten news of Iana Dior and Alana Rose, who have been badly beaten by cis men. Black trans women have given us so much. They have fueled our movements. They nourish our culture. Yet the daily violence they face is incredible. We are not protecting them in the ways that they deserve. Um, We all need to look within. At ourselves, our friends, our families, our colleagues, our communities. And see where the seeds of this violence have taken root and do the work of dismantling trans misogyny that is killing black trans women along with anti-blackness. Us losing something in the process of standing up for trans women is not as bad as the violent epidemic trans women of color and specifically black trans women are going through. And really there is so much expansion to be had by honoring the beings and the brilliance of black trans women. In many South Asian spiritual practices, there is a concept of darshan, which in essence is a practice of honoring your own wholeness by witnessing and honoring the wholeness of the being in front of you. It is a way of experiencing God. So let us all give money and resources to the trans women in our cities and in our neighborhoods. Let's read, learn and unlearn, and Let's listen and take leadership from Black trans women because all our liberation is tied up together. In the spirit of listening and witnessing, our guest for this episode is the incredible Raven Aria Wings. Raven is an African, Bermudan, Mohawk, two-spirit, queer, and transcendent individual. Raven works to challenge mainstream arts and dance spaces by sharing her stories while continuing to create opportunities and platforms for marginalized queer, trans, and two-spirit people with a focus on African and Black communities. Raven is a co-founder of Ilnana, a diversity dance company. Ilnana is a queer, multiracial dance company that uh, aims to change the landscape of dance and provide accessible, affirming dance education to queer, trans, and two-spirit communities. Raven is the artistic director of OVA, Outrageous Victorious Africans, which is a dance and theater collective that share the contemporary voices of African, Black, and queer storytellers. Raven is part of Black Lives Matter Toronto Steering Committee and holds a deep commitment to eradicating all forms of anti-Black racism, supporting Black healing, and liberating Black communities. Raven is a magical, generous being, and I am so grateful she took the time to come on our podcast. Before we get to the interview, I want to highlight a couple things. One is that a portion of our Patreon funds will go directly to Raven. Uh, so please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash possibilitiespodcast. And the other thing is that our producer, uh, Kumari, has a weird and amazing hobby. Uh, they love to transcribe. It's really because they're passionate about increasing access. So in their free time, they have created transcripts for our episodes this season. Uh, you can find them at our Linktree page, which is l-i-n-k-t-r dot e-e slash possibilities podcast. If there are other ways we can make our show more accessible, please let us know. Uh, we will do our best to make it happen. 
So we recorded this interview with Raven in March, not too long after we were all required to shelter in place. Um, it was our first online interview. Uh, we were just figuring out the tech and we had some glitches. The sound is a bit different from other episodes, but I trust you'll stick with us because what Raven has to offer in this podcast is so worth it. Um, this was honestly one of my favorite interviews this season. So let's dive into it. Without further ado, here is my conversation with the delectable Raven Aria Wings. doing in these times, Raven? In January, when it first was sort of, uh, like, announced that this was happening, I was like, hmm, it seems different than, like, a regular outbreak. And so I was like, okay, maybe there are some things we need to start preparing. But then it, it felt like everyone was like, oh, it's over there, it's not over here. Right. Now that it feels like it's a full onslaught, it, it makes me think about a couple of different things, which are like, we're in this pandemic, epidemic, but there have been epidemics before. And I think what's, what's interesting is that because it's not just affecting poor people or, or queer folks, that it is um, now being taken seriously. Right. And now that the premier's life has it and the mayor has it and that, now mm. they're like, really thinking about it, but when it was just Asian folks, there wasn't this sort of, um, oh, how can we help? How can we reach out? How can we, like, provide? Like, no one was really thinking about how they were going to work to survive. It was, you know what I mean? It was just like an idea that um, we're so separate. Yeah. This whole coronavirus thing is, is like, Completely opposite of that. We're actually much more connected than people <laughs> think we are. I mean, yeah. those of us who know how big Turtle Island is, um, we understand that, but then you're just seeing it in mass numbers now. And the, and the hysteria around it was like a little bit hard for me to sort of find grounding in. Right. Um, and with BLM, we were working on like creating a fund and putting out. Um, who needs help? But then we had we we were like we had we're gonna like try and give it to like forty folks, and then we got like three hundred asked, and we're like like if, if people are really going to hard time. Not that I didn't think that was gonna happen, but yeah, yeah, it was like overwhelmed with the amount of um wealth history that we have yeah like we knew it because we were doing the work around like you know decolonization and anti-capitalism but still it's like yeah it's kind of that, that slap in the face of capitalism really doesn't work and now everyone knows it doesn't work mm-hmm. they're still using capitalism to fix it which is anyway bizarre <laughs> no that's true that's true and it's, it's so funny because people keep referring back to the Spanish flu pandemic, which happened in yeah. 19... But there was a pandemic, AIDS crisis, which was also yeah, a pandemic. Exactly, that, exactly. But we don't really talk, think about that because we think about it as a queer crisis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, yeah. It, it just it shows you that it's not really... And which is not... Even the AIDS crisis was not just about queer people, but... <laughs> exactly. 
but because it was it was so easy to marginalize it and because it was about sex right yeah um, anytime sex is involved you can demonize it um Totally. Yeah, I was reading about how like someone was like when you when you disclose your HIV status versus when you disclose your coronavirus status, what is the difference in responses? Huge difference. in how like your your there's, there's like this empathy that comes with with all other sort of viruses, whether it be cancer or things like that. But then when it comes to like STIs or mm-hmm. like anything related to something sexual, um then you're automatically then it's like your fault and even if it is like the way that you treat it is it's like even worse and, i mean we're humans we're yeah. all full of faults i mean that's yeah, just who we exactly. are you know um yeah. well i mean despite the environment and despite uh coronavirus and like facing all this mm-hmm. uncertainty i'm really glad to have you on this podcast i've been really looking forward to it um and i'm excited to have this conversation with you um okay cool i'm gonna get started and i wanted to kind of you know start with the question of we've known each other a little bit in community for a while uh i mean for me you're this person i've really looked up to Uh, i see you out in community you're a dancer you're a teacher a mentor you're an activist um but the first thing i think of when i think of you is that you're someone who really embodies grace Uh, and i mean like a dancer's grace which you definitely have um I also mean an energetic grace. I mean, that's what it feels like to me. But, you know, we've never had a one-on-one intentional conversation like we're going to have today. Uh, and sometimes the right time is in the midst of a global pandemic. That's just the time we have. So to start, I'm going to ask, because I'm wondering, because you're especially because you're a performer, you're seen by others on stages, if there is a distance between the witnessing from afar uh, and how you feel within, you know, I want to know, is grace something you feel connected to? You know, what is your relationship to grace? Wow. Um, it is fascinating that you just asked that question. Um, because I've been thinking about that quite a lot. <laughs> um, in relationship to, I just finished reading a book called, um, The Children of Blood and Bone by Tony. I love that book. It's so good. And it just, it just made me think about, um, struggle and, um, and how we, how each person deals with trauma. So how Tony dealt with her, her trauma from seeing, you know, Orlando mm-hmm. and Mike Brown and, you know, all, all the people, um, just to create this book where she could avenge it yeah um but still managed within that adventure right um to to create humanity for the other side and so i i just thinking about how um how much care went into that mm-hmm. um how much um strength it takes to prevent care outwardly mm-hmm. um, well, Grace, I feel like Grace is something that I was raised with my mother. Like, I feel like a lot of, and not, um, maybe not a lot of, like, um, people of color feel this way, but particularly within my household and some of the other black households that I know of, um, 
that it's similar to how like a lot of Asian folks say saving face. So black folks is like our our grace is is our um, is the way that we move through hard stuff. Right. Um, it's, it's the it's the sort of mask um, that we present to the world and um, all the people that we know. Um, it doesn't necessarily always wear all of the problems and issues and struggles that you're dealing with, like on your sleeve. I do that in my performance, obviously, but like um, on a regular basis, that isn't it isn't the safest for me to to expose my pain. And so I do it with like grace and and glamour and whatever else that I throw on top of it. Um, right. So it it's awesome to have that reflection back in me considering that's what i was working on okay um, <laughs> well so there so the, the, the gap is not that big so maybe there is something no, that's translating yeah. Yeah, quite i'm glad awesome. i'm glad to hear that um i mean and going off what you were saying you know you're an artist uh you're black uh you're uh, you know a trans two-spirit queer person moving through this world the act of creation you know, of self, of creation of your work is so central to all those identities and all those mo- ways of moving through the world. Um, so what does being a creator mean to you? Well, the first thing that comes to mind when I that question is, 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 is that I go beyond what it means to me. Like for me, it's, like, it's quite selfish, actually. <laughs> yeah. Um, to be a creator, like I am I'm self-centered in the way that I want to feel. In the way that I want to um, perform and be seen, essentially, mm-hmm. right? And as a performer, my my goal is to be seen in in the way that I choose. Yeah. To be. Um. But larger than that, I feel like it's my responsibility. You know, in this pandemic right now, right? Artists are 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 coming up with all these, and not just like quote unquote performance artists. But all artists, like food artists, like um, social media artists, like everyone is, a lot of folks are trying to figure out ways to keep people entertained, to keep people feeling like taken care of, um, to use their art for what it was intended for, for like storytelling, for healing, for rejuvenation, for history. Um, And that's what I feel like. I have a tagline called the Black Widow, Mm -hmm. (laughs) burlesque. Um, and the reason why I chose that tagline is because I wanted my art to be a reminder of what has already happened. Mm. Everything it takes for um, queer and trans and non-binary black trans women specifically to get on stage mm-hmm. or to get out of their bed. Um, all, all the things that it takes to actually show up in, in public and that it is um, largely, you know, fierce in the world, like fierce or, or whatever, or fly yeah. or uh, whatever else, I would say. Um, yeah. But um, for me, it, 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 it's, it's an honoring. I feel like my whole existence is an honoring. Trans women before me, trans folks before me, queer folks before me, um, black ancestors and elders. And so that's my my art has become something that I 
like more that, that used to be solely mine, and now there's like this larger collective. I really feel that the the way that it's connected to so many people. For example, the Tony Adam book that I talked about. Um, I'm also writing a play. And what was interesting was while I'm, I was writing a play about my mother, and, and, and while I'm writing a play about her, I, I was like, oh, there's a deity that's coming to me, like uh, Arisha Oya, mm-hmm. who's coming to me, and, and I'm walk, working and writing with her, right? Um, and then reading that book, it was like the, the lead protagonist's mother is Oya. Like, it's, mm-hmm. it's like, it was just very, like, you know, very interesting how this sort of renaissance, this queer and trans renaissance that's happening right now, where we're more visible, um, where we're in control of our narratives. Um, even your own podcast, like things like these, these ways of communicating that were impossible 20, 30 years ago, yeah. um, are, are now vehicles for us to actually connect and share with each other. Yeah. 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 And creation as uh, as connection to your people and your ancestors is such a powerful way of moving with it um, mm-hmm. and keeping that alive. Uh, totally. Um, okay. So Kumari, who's uh, on the call with us, uh, our, my, my producer on this podcast and who you know quite well, because you've collaborated with a lot in the past. Um, they told me that uh, when you're creating a show, a performance mm-hmm. or anything really, um, you think about, the whole thing, how the whole thing can be shaped so that everyone can be immersed in the experience, uh, which I think is a very particular skill, you know? So I want you to tell me how, uh, when you're coming up with a new piece, where do you start? Like, uh, do you start with the audience who will be in the room? Do you start with something you want to say? Do you start with a movement you want to showcase? Um, what is the seed of the inspiration that you water and grow? And how do you do that work of world building so that we can all be immersed in the experience? Well, it's different. You know, like it's like I, I create differently for different things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when it is something that is really like take burlesque for us. And I've been doing burlesque for the past like three, three, four years maybe, mm-hmm. two, three, two years. Mm-hmm. Um, I use burlesque as, as a true vehicle for what I want to say. For, for all the all of the misconceptions that I have been a part of creating by presenting myself in a specific particular kind of way in public, in community, and on the um, right, and it it it's my way of of sharing my truth. Um, Raven means truth teller, right? So that that's part of um how I understand myself in the world right now. Okay. And um, so partially, like the last work that I just did, I I started with a feeling. I was feeling like I wanted to talk about functional depression. Yeah. And how, and, and what that can actually look like. And I think that I actually was, a lot of my life that way. Um, yeah. Relatable. Yeah, and and just like mainly because like I've had this amazing year where um, 
I've been doing lectures in universities and I've been, you know, asked to go to Paris and Venezuela for different dance jobs and um, all these things that I've been like wanting and asking for for a long time. Yeah. Um, going to be seen and recognized for who I am as an artist um, or an individual or what I offer to movement. Yeah. Um, all of that is happening, but it feels like an overwhelm of abundance. And I was like, what is that about? Um, and so that was really where the, where the idea came from. It's like, what is this over? I have everything that I was asking for, right? But, but I still have this ache and this, and this, this desire, this sorrow that isn't quite dry. And so, um, the piece was really about working through that pain and that, um, truth for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, grief. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I started with that as a feeling. And so then I knew that I wasn't going to create a work that was, I was trying to make visually stunning. Um, yeah. I really wanted it to be as honest as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so I, I formed it for a, the Right to Dance Intensive Program, which is a program created by one of the Dance companies that Kumar was also a part of. Yeah. of growing and feeding and, you know, and uh, I performed as part of the showcase as the facilitator. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to offer the participants in, in the program um, an option of not having to show perfection or, or to or to be done with anything in order to share it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the piece essentially wasn't done and I wasn't planning on finishing it. Right. And so I performed an unfinished piece, which if people know me is strange. <laughs> um, Cause I, I, I like to, I'm a Virgo, so I like to complete it and that's, you know, and you know what's going on on stage. Yeah, but yeah. for this one it was like, I just want the, the energy of the song, the words of the song, the, the energy of the audience to tell me where this is going to go. Right. Um, and so that's how I brought in the audience. It was after I had figured out this is what I wanted to talk about. These are the groups that were actually going to see it. It does change what I perform. Yeah. With the audience, because I don't think that everyone deserves my story. Yeah. Um, but queer and trans folks, definitely, um, I can share my story. With the, you know, it's a bit different. Um, and so that's one example of, of, of one way that I've crafted a work. And I feel like the, the works that I feel most strongest about are the ones that I am, that I let go of what it looks like. Mm. Um, and that's so and interesting then, for a dancer. Yeah, yeah. The only reason that I know what it looks like is because people tell me after. And so when I performed the piece, I, I, my, my whole thing was like, I'm going to go real, method on it and I'm just gonna perform in whatever I'm wearing that day. Right. So I'm not gonna like, try and come up with a costume or some elaborate something to distract from all the things. I'm just gonna feel on stage and do it like I'm doing it. Mm. Um and yeah, and so I got what I needed from from the piece, um, which is usually why I perform. Like there's something that I'm trying to work through um emotionally or mentally or even physically. 
that I haven't been able to figure out with words. You know, I'm a, I'm a sound and movement healer, and so some things are best expressed that way, and then I have this understanding once they're performed in front of an audience. This is Right. And then, oh, now I know what this thing is. Okay, now let me work on it and figure it out. That's that's beautiful that you allow yourself that freedom to not know everything to start, to kind of explore, to get to know it as, yeah, as, like, as it becomes. One of my models is like, I want to be as brave and as bold as Mariah Carey. You know oh. how Mariah Carey moves to the world in a way that everyone knows that she is doing the least. But everyone's okay with it. Yes, she is. <laughs> you know, because she's actually not apologizing for it. Yeah. And I realize there's so much in my life that I apologize for. Wow. You know, you get up on stage and you and you dance this brilliant work. And you're like, oh, I'm sorry that you have to watch me do this brilliant work. Like, oh, even so it's great, you're still apologizing. Um, and so I'm trying to invoke the divas. <laughs> yeah. In the phase of my creation. Oh God, that's so true. I mean, yeah, as an art, as like people to stop apologizing and just, I'm doing the least and that's all I'm going to be doing. And you're welcome. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you're going to be grateful. Um, I mean, that's, that's great. That's great. Um, I, I want to, cause you touched on some of these things uh, as you were answering. Um, I wanted to ask about, um, you know, El Nana, which uh, is a dance company that you co-founded with Ziyang, uh, which is named after a Foxy Brown song, right? Yeah. Uh, Great name, mm -hmm. great name. Uh, it seems to me that Il Nana is like a portal of sorts. Like there's this outside world where there's like mainstream world of dance with all of its complications and messy dynamics and hierarchies and all that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, you all can't see Raven's face, but it's good. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, then there's this portal of Il Nana through which you've created the space for yourself. Uh, and for so many others, you know, and as you and you were just mentioning Right to Dance, which is the dance intensive that you run for like, it's a two month revolutionary movement mentorship program uh, for people marginalized from the dance world, queer folks, trans folks, racialized people, disabled people, two-spirit people, non-binary, intersex people, fat people. Um, and it's such a beautiful collection of folks who are not given that opportunity to express themselves and, uh, in you know, um, through movement, through through their bodies, uh, which is so powerful. And these intensive run for like five, six cycles now, right? Uh, and so, so, so tell me about the so tell me about the journey. Tell me about the iterations and the lessons you have learned in doing this work Ooh. on possibility creation. I know it's a big question, but I want to hear your story. No, I'm I'm, I'm grateful for it. You know, um, and that's what I think that is the crux of it all. I'm grateful for it. You know, Alana was not supposed to be this. Or maybe it was, and I just didn't realize it. Mm. Um, but I, yeah, I was in school, and I was at Toronto Dance Theatre, School of Toronto Dance Dance Theatre, and I was, it was just so unhappy. Mm. I was like, yeah. I'm in this school that people don't even get a chance to step in, and I'm so unhappy. Like, what is this about? Is this going to be my dance career? Is this? Like, I thought I was going to be able to tell stories. I thought I was going to feel like like watching a musical, you know, uh, a good one, you know. <laughs> but, I, I, yeah, I was like, oh, I thought I was going to feel like the Lion King, like you're singing your heart out and everyone is, like, with you singing their heart out, you know. It's just um, this moment of connection that for myself as an awkward person in the world, I 
don't always get, you know? Right. Um, and so that's really what it was about. It was like, well, let's just have fun. You know, we saw Safonda Cox, who is a legendary drag performer in Toronto. Mm. Um, he's international, but mm-hmm. based in Toronto. Um, and I was like, I want that. I, I want to be able to perform like that. You have an audience like that. I want people to be excited for what we're doing. I don't want it to be this thing that feels like it only exists in one space that so many of the people who look like me don't get to be in unless we're on stage. And even when we're on stage, we're not represented there. So, um, yeah, it was for fun. It was to express all the things that everyone told me I wasn't supposed to do. Right. Which is like, you're not supposed to wear pink. You're not supposed to wear this. You're supposed to have your chest out and big muscles and la 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 all the things, you know, all the ways that masculinity and patriarchy is smashed onto um, storytelling in a really violent way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, with Cien and Renaud Jean-Pierre, um, and there's been so many people who've been part of growing the collective and like what Olano was, Christina Udebanum. Actually, Christina Udebanum and Cien were the ones who came up with Right to Dance in the first place. Mm. I originally didn't want to be a teacher. Maybe not because I didn't want to be, it's just because I didn't think that I had anything to share. Wow. You know, I was in this program that told me that I didn't have enough of what I needed to even be there. So I didn't feel like I had the right to share that, share my less of having enough with everyone else, but this didn't make sense to me. Mm. Um, but this, this rite of passage um as a dance where as, after you graduate then you can teach because then you would have proved that you can handle something right but um yeah so that was where that was from and it was really because we were performing we were we started performing as Onana in, in different spaces and then um teach a workshop and we taught it and it was this way that we keep we were choreographing for ourselves mm. with like openness of like try this way try that way there's not one way la 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 um, we didn't even know what we were actually doing, but we were not going to repeat what we had been through. Mm. So then they were like, oh, okay, what, what can we do to, what other classes are there? And we're like, we have no idea. And that was when it was like, okay, we should do something about this. So we created this program. Um, there have been six cycles. We just finished the sixth cycle, and each cycle taught me something different about myself as an artist. And as a facilitator, and even in what community is. Um, coming from Bermuda and living in between Bermuda and Atlanta, um, community wasn't something that I ever really looked for. Mm. It wasn't, I was like, I'm an individual in the world, I'm gonna make it on my own, la 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 la. Right. Um, so I wasn't really like, oh, I'm looking for community to hold me or to this. That wasn't really the way that I came into it. I came into it as a performer, and so I never really engage with it in that way so right then the the first cycle was um exciting it was like nothing i had experienced before because i was sitting with folks who really just needed to be witnessed Mm, yeah they were already beautiful performers and they just needed someone to be like hey i see what you're doing and here's where it can go 
Right. And so that's what the first cycle felt like. It felt like a lot of, you know, mistakes. <laughs> a lot of, oh, maybe I should rethink that. A lot of um, unknown boundaries came up of like, oh, how, how are we for, how we, are we friends with people? Are we, right. you know, we teachers, how do we balance this relationship um, in community and then go outside and hang out together? Like, how do we do yeah. that? And we couldn't really figure it out great balance and so maybe the third cycle for myself personally yeah um, you know the third cycle was like oh actually i think that i'm emotionally trying to hold too much mm. um, i'm emotionally trying to hold every rejection that everyone has and i can't do all of that and not yeah. that i was doing what i'm doing that i think all the three of us were all were doing that yeah. Mari, myself and cn in different ways right um you know, Kamari's knowledge of, of production, design, um, facilitation, and CN's understanding of, of, of storytelling and movement and body, and then my understanding of, of like clarity and, um, you know, impact. Mm-hmm. So um, those were the first three cycles. And then the fourth cycle was rough. It was really rough and honest. Honestly, because we didn't have funding, and we we're like, we can do this with the bow funding, <laughs> and we did. We yeah, did. We did do it, yeah. um, and that's the thing: we can do it without funding, but we shouldn't. You know, yeah, <laughs> because because of and and that that really burnt me out. You know, that really kind of made me be like, okay, maybe I need to figure out or re readjust this whole set and figure out if this is something that we want to continue to do. Are we failing people? I felt like that year, a lot of the feedback that we got, people were not happy with the way the program was going. And so, you know, you have two options when people bring you things like that. It's like you can stop doing it, so you're not creating more harm in your community, or you can figure it out and work through it and come out with something that's stronger or better and more representative you want to give. Mm-hmm, and so, mm-hmm. with this cycle, felt like that. We were really like, okay, this is. This is what we understand. These are all these different years. You know, um, we understand who we are to these folks. Let's do this. And so it was, um, it was exciting, you know, and, and we had a grant. We had a grant that allowed us to pay for our men. And it was the first time we really realized, I really realized all the different jobs we were doing. Like right. I knew we were doing them, but I didn't, they, I didn't know that the breakdown of each of them and how vast these roles were and how much we were right. we were demanding of ourselves in order to, to, to provide this program and many other programs. We were still performing and we were still creating and we were, you know, all the different things that we were doing. So this yeah. last cycle was incredible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was incredible because um, we've had five years the year in between so six years of really um working on ourselves as facilitators understanding what we were valuing in the beginning how that shifted and changed and what we were valuing now mm-hmm. and how and how even that we had to be really um, careful with because our values as Arias being in the game 16 years is so different than someone who's just beginning and so allowing them to have their own 
values, their own um, space to um, own gold. Yeah. You know, I, you know, my whole thing about this program is like, I want people to feel like they can create work without us after it. Yeah. I want them to feel like they don't need us anymore. And that they are our colleagues afterward and push us to be better artists. And a lot of them do, right? A lot of them have gone past it and created many, many things. And it's been really wonderful to watch this explosion of this um, culture shift. You know, programs like, like this and, and drag musical, um, yeah. you know, they, they really shifted who was on stage, who was performing on stage, how we were teaching and talking about art and movement. And um, it really changed the landscape of dance and, and performance in a way that I feel like I didn't even really realize. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I didn't realize how much... Um, Things had changed. Grants had changed. Right. You know, with it. Like, I didn't realize that we had done so much. We, we were really giving ourselves credit. Not even that I'm giving myself credit now, because, you know, um, the work that we were able to do was based on work that was done before us, too, right? But it, yeah, but you contributed. It, yeah. It, it, yeah. And we just feeling the contribution. And so this year um, was really exciting. We had a great group of artists. Um, we really focused a lot on um, technique and choreographic expression. Yeah. And we brought in four guest artists who I am inspired by. Um, Kamari was one of them. Yeah, Kamari. Um, <laughs> and it really helped. It really helped our these artists be like, oh, I can create like that. Mm. You know? Um, oh, it doesn't have to be this way. Like, I don't have to dance like Michael Jackson to be a male performer on stage. It doesn't have to be campy yeah. in order for me to feel good. Or it can really be campy. You know, like, there's 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 benefit and boldness and beautiful in each and every expression. Totally. Um, it's always an incredible showcase where the dress rehearsal, I was watching them perform their pieces that they had created, and I was like, Wow, I have to step it up. <laughs> that was so exciting. That was so exciting for me to yeah. be like, wow, I can't just get on the stage and just do whatever. Like I really have to get up there and do something because these artists have like under the my understanding of what you can create in two months. So right. I'll figure it out. Which um, <laughs> is what that. I wanted, you know? Yeah. I want all of us to push each other in all those kinds of ways. And so yeah, the program has just been life-changing in my understanding of um, who I am as a person and, and um, performance and all the all the bull crap that I had in my mind about what it's supposed to look like um, right. in the beginning. Right. There's so much in that story that, I mean, I think, first of all, I think that art school sucks for all queers. <laughs> Queer people of color, I don't know if you should mm-hmm. go to art school. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just... Uh, it's a hard time and then but I but what I love the most about the story is this um moment of crisis which is the fourth cycle where really things kind of broke down things you know you took on too much it didn't go well you were just like should I even continue because it might be harmful for people to go through this experience and you took that and you transformed it which is something and you took the feedback in like you know you didn't like 
I think there are, there's, there's a third grader reacted, which is like, tell everyone who's wrong to shut the fuck up. I'm still doing what I'm doing. Because that also goes on. You know, there's like a defensiveness that can go on. Um, you know, sometimes I did feel like that. <laughs> to be honest. Let's be honest. Well, I'm grateful. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's true. Because I think sometimes people just can't see the imp- effort you're putting in. And that's just not something yeah. they're able to understand without a grant yeah well i think that there was pressure right there was a pressure because we had done it three times or the people were in the community were seeing the benefits of it mm-hmm. they were seeing these relationships formed grew up through the program and came expecting to have that experience yeah. without actually doing the work to have that experience mm-hmm. and so you know my job isn't to make people be friends my job is to create a program where you feel like you're getting what you want Mm-hmm. You know, um, and so there's, there's a massive difference in the intention of, of the program. Um, and so we were just clear about it this time, even in the application. We were just clear about what it was going to be. We laid out the schedule. We laid out who the guest facilitators were going to be. Like everything was pretty much um, planned out in a way that the, the people applying could understand what they were coming into. Yeah. One thing that really made a difference um, for how they participated and, and, and what they ended up creating in the end. Yeah, yeah. That's, I mean, that the piece about boundaries also, which you mentioned, which is also so powerful because mm-hmm. we, as community members, we're just like, we're all friends, but then can we yeah. really take that on? And, you know, mm-hmm. holding people's grief and art is just like this huge thing with their body, especially maybe with dance, you know, and there's, the rejection isn't just about an idea that you had, it's about your body you know right. and it's so it, it's so visceral so it's it's i mean i think there's so much in that story for us to like sit with and marinate with how to come up with boundaries and how when you're trying new things unknowns will come up and you'll be like you have to kind of adapt to them as they go along um, yeah i think i think it's because like we were focused on trying to create an accessible program yeah and we on on centering disability justice and trans feminism there, there's a way that you can um, take yourself out of the equation. Right. You can be like, well, I have had a privilege, and I have. I had a privilege of going through this program, even though it was hard and shitty. I still have the privilege of existing in a dance world that didn't actually reject me. Right. And all of them, particularly as other folks were rejected. Right. And so there was a way that I was like, well, I can deal with this, and then this is for everyone else. Right. You know, I'm going to go and do this terrible dance job so it can give me money so I can provide this thing for free um, and I can do that because that's my role. Right. And I'm not really recognizing how how much I wouldn't actually take care of myself. So here I am offering a space for people to be themselves and to be angry and sad and, and wonderful and joyous and just incredible. Sometimes we're afraid to be great, right? Yeah. And so um, even that, and then I wasn't really giving myself that space either. Yeah. Um, and so that's also what boundaries were about. It was about like really understanding um, one way to be accessible is actually sharing what your boundaries are. You know, it's to be like, this is actually what I can do, what I can't mm-hmm. do. This is what this program does and doesn't. This is the, these are the ways this program still needs to grow because it needs to grow. Yeah. <laughs> and you can, like there's, 
there's so many folks that are still not able to access it and I want them to be, but I also need to make sure that I have, I am equipped to handle that, right. you know? Right. Um, yeah. And so that, yeah, that, that's just part of, I think, the learning from community. It's like, you're not just coming in and being like, this is what I know here, community. It's like, community is back at you and you're like, oh, oh. Mm. Yeah. Okay, let me let me think about it because I I'm I'm you know like if you take your ego out of it then it's just the information right totally. it's just what you're feeling and you can agree or disagree but if you're not actually going to listen to it then you shouldn't be doing community work like right. it doesn't make sense you know right totally yeah I mean that's so true and that's so powerful thing about like we all so many times we're just taking ourselves out of the equation and we're just and we're thinking that's that's the radical thing to do because somebody else has not had the experience we've had. And so that means if we take ourselves out, then we'll be able to take care of them. But then ultimately nobody gets taken care of really. (laughs) And that's, yeah, that's an important lesson for us to learn. But but I think the end of it is that you found, you found a way to transmute all of that and to build something that actually is working more. And I mean, the other thing that I also, that really struck out to me, and I think I find this when I'm doing my own work is like, we take on so much work to do everything ourselves and we don't even think about asking help. And like in the fifth or sixth season, you hired people to do admin. The amount yeah. of admin artists do is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. On top of our artwork, on top of all the other things that you're doing, you're just the amount of infrastructural work we're doing to create our lives and to create our programs is so big. And mm-hmm. uh, tell me what that experience was like when you, tell me a little more about the experience when you got people to like do some, take some of that away. What did it create for you? What space did it create for you? Um, okay. Um, well, last year we, we we hired one person onto the the core team of Breaking Dance Project, um, Kamika, who came in, and that was really great. It was a, it was a real learning experience in terms of um, what the roles actually were and the culture that we had set up. And when I say we, I mean me, Kamari, and Tian had a had a way that we related to each other, mm-hmm. um, some of it unspoken. Um, there, there was a way that we worked um, that worked and also didn't work in some ways sure. <laughs> for us. Um, but like, yeah, like there was, there was something about that. So adding in one person, it was like, oh, wow, we really have a way that we do things. And we're really trying to get this person to fit into our way of doing things. But what what does it look like for everyone to have their own agency? Um, and so this year, Deanna and I were like, okay, what, you know, Kamari left this year, I stepped away from the program. Um, and so we had a new person, a brand new person <laughs> who I hadn't, I didn't have a previous relationship with. Okay. Um, who came into the program and Oman has largely been that. It's been like friends and, and, and family and, and artists and both people who come in right and right. so bringing in someone new who was part of community in some ways blah, 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 um was really difficult mm. it was very difficult and it's not because they are difficult it was just really difficult because we hired two extra folks so there was five of us mm. instead of the three instead of the four now there's five individuals who we have to sort of understand and create a dynamic with while we're doing this program that's really fast 
And mm-hmm. it's like, you know, two months feels like a long time, but it's also really not. Right. And there's a lot that needs to be done within that time period. Um, and then there's, there was a lot of learning for me around um, the things that I assumed. Totally. You know, when you're, when you're hiring someone, you're putting this weird position, right? So because for me, and, I, and not just me as an individual, I didn't necessarily have the skills to do what we were doing. Okay. Like, uh, I had to learn those skills on the job. It's right. Like learning how to fly an airplane while you're flying an airplane. So um, having people come in and apply for a job with all these credentials that I don't actually have was mm-hmm. really like a, I was like, oh, whoa. Like, <laughs> yeah. I don't really have all these, these particular skills. What am I asking for? What does this even mean? Yeah. You know? Um, in, 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 in hindsight, there are questions, there are questions that, that I have now right. that had I known and asked before, I mean, situations would have, have happened differently. Right. Throughout right. The, um, um, miscommunications, how often we, we talk to each other. It, it, cause you know, when it was, Mari, Sam, and I, I'd be like, oh, come on, we're doing this thing tomorrow because we were also rehearsing. We were around each other almost every single day. Right. It's different than five individuals who have different schedules and have different artistic practices. So when you're like, oh, hey, y'all, da 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 someone's like, actually, it's my day off. I'm working on something else. And you're like, ooh. Right. Right. New boundaries. Yeah. <laughs> and, um... That was great. It's always great to, to receive like new ways of working and, and understand sort of the way that you're used to working isn't necessarily doesn't have to be the way that it has to go. Right. Um, and so it, I'm 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 not gonna lie. It was very difficult. Mm. Very difficult. Right. Right. Very difficult. And um, in terms of like knowing what my role was anymore. You know, I was like, I'm not trying to tell you what to do in your job, but this is what we've done. But what does that mean? Like, <laughs> what am I saying? Right, right. I know what you're to do the job. And so it was just like a lot of like real like self-reflection. Um, and so moving into this next cycle, we have another cycle coming up. There's so many ways that I will move very, very differently around um the artists that we're bringing into this year. Wow. I mean, totally, totally. I mean, that's like the thing of like scaling up and having more, um, letting go of the things that you used to do, you know, and allowing for new things to happen because you no longer have to do those things, which means they're going to be done differently. Uh, And then, Mm -hmm. and letting that unfold. And I'm fascinated because I'm like, this is actually such a, these are the nitty gritty things about like, creation work and about continuing to do creation work that we uh we look over we don't talk about enough about how we need to constantly be changing as long also with the work mm-hmm. okay i'm gonna switch gears a little bit mm-hmm. and um ask you about i mean you mentioned this a little bit a little while ago but you talked about doing burlesque you've been doing more and more burlesque in the last three four years um and i wanted you to talk talk to me a little more about that you know you uh you said that it's it's where you tell your truth. You you you, you mm-hmm. use that stage to 
um, tell you truth. You know, and burlesque is a form that's about embodying like a sensuality and a sexuality really in this overt way. It's taking up space and being visible in a particular way. So tell me about what burlesque has taught you and what your relationship to is, and also what it has taught you about desire and consent, you know? Interesting that you said that, because as you were asking that question, I was going to say, Okay, cool. Um, I, I, I didn't understand what burlesque was. Not not in, in this way that I was like, oh, it doesn't mean anything. I just didn't, it didn't enter my space of thinking about, oh, that's an avenue that I can utilize to become a better storyteller. Mm. So it was actually uh, a conversation that I had with Kumari, actually, okay. uh, around burlesque. And, and Kumari said something that was, I'm paraphrasing in a way, um, burlesque is one of the most consensual art forms. You got to tell the audience exactly what you want from them, like how you right. want them to intake you, how you want them to... Uh, what what you show and what you don't show, like you actually have a choice. Yeah. Um, and I was like, oh, <laughs> I would true. like to have choices on stage. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was literally that. It was like literally that. Um, it was the initiator, you know? And I had um, performed in a couple of the showcases that Mari uh, curated with Shonda, unapologetic for less. Right. Um, yeah. Which really, um, I don't know if unapologetic gets the, the credit that it deserves for, for what, um, they offered, um, artists and artists care. It was huge. Yeah. Artists care specifically, but also the, the, the amount of artists that were on stage, the different artists that showed up on stage. It was just, it was just this really beautiful explosion of creation. It's like a seed and then boom, it just opens, you know? Yeah. And, and when I was performing in those, those shows, I was really just still dancing. I wasn't really storytelling yet. Um, some might just see but I, um, but I was still very much relying on the things I had always relied on, um, which was, you know, oh, I know that people find my body attractive. And so I'm just going to do something that people, <laughs> you know, um, will want to see me do. I wasn't utilizing it to be like, oh, this is how I want to be seen. This is how I want to be touched. This is how, this is what desire looks like for me. This is what my sexuality is and isn't right and so burlesque actually for me i, I really actually even think about that myself. and i utilize glamour the the magic of glamour mm-hmm. and illusion yeah um the idea that i want i i want them to consume me okay so the way that I do that is is that I utilize the first thing that comes up for people, which is my visual. Right. And so I will wear something that's like skimpy or a bathing suit or just, just something that, that showcases my body in really particular ways. Mm-hmm. And then I will perform a piece that is not talking about that at all. Right. Right. Because I know I like, this is actually going to get you your attention. Yeah. And the thing about attraction and desire is 
if someone is attracted to you, if someone has desire for you, they'll pay attention to what you say. It's true. Right? And so it's like, I'm actually going to utilize this human thing mm-hmm. um, against them. To be like, oh, you thought that I was just going to entice you. And really what I want you to understand is everything it takes me to stand on the stage in front of you. Yeah. And so that's how, that's how I utilize my burlesque now, which is why I use Black Widow, as I was saying earlier. And I teach burlesque, too, with mm. a friend of mine, Dainty Smith. Yeah, Dainty. Um, who also, like, she talks about um, burlesque starting as a written art form first. Mm. Um, burlesque is theater. Right. It is very, very much connected to clowning, actually. And yeah. the idea of, oh, of characters and character building and, and expression and utilizing the absurd, um, mm. using utilizing the sexual, the, the archetypes, like the vixen, the yeah. ingenue, the coquette, like all these different ideas, caricatures of, of a person, of right. a feminized person, of a not even just feminized because many people are doing less now. But, um, and it's also, in that note, um, Celeste is one of the few places that women actually have control. Interesting. You know, it's like they're... Women actually do have control? Sorry, I misheard you. This is, yeah, women have control. Oh, yeah, that's true, that's true. Where where it's like, when women is like, oh, I am a burlesque performer on this stage and you're going to pay attention to me in this particular way. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, it's it's not a space that men get to come into, um, or masculine or gender folks get to come into in any particular way. There's a way that you are asked to um, be responsible um, for what you're witnessing. Yeah. Um, like it, it, yeah, it's a gift for you to be witnessing this <laughs> kind of idea. Um, and so I feel like it just offers something different. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, and it, and because it's this this open art form where I can express theater, um, that that's definitely how I how I utilize it. It's, it's 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 one of my favorite things to actually do right now um, is to perform burlesque and to watch people come into utilizing their own desires mm-hmm. um, and sensuality and sexuality. Um, their own mind, their own creativity, um, to create new avenues and ways to walk through the world. Yeah. You know, because I feel like there's, you know, clowning and, and burlesque theater utilizes the, the mundane, the, the everyday. Right. You know, which is exaggerates it, you know? And so you have an opportunity to, to figure out how you can exists in the world and as a trans person um that's what i've utilized it for it's like oh this i can be celebrated when i move like this or when i talk like this or when i sing like this or when i create like this okay then maybe i can go out in the street and walk like this mm. so it's a, this transfer of um stage to life kind of thing to me mm. i want to ask about that because i you know i think you were saying um that you know you'll wear 
you'll wear outfits that you want people to feel that are skimpy outfits that are, you know, sexual outfits that you feel, you know, both for yourself and for the audience. Mm-hmm. Um, but then what, what does it feel like to actually walk in the subway after, after you've had a burlesque performance? Like what, what is, what is safety and protection? What, what, what safety and protection do you feel like you have access to and what safety and protection do you crave? Wow. Um, Actually, because um, I'm a very spirit-led creator um, at the moment in here, I, it's, it's this portal jump and opening for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't actually get on the subway after I perform the last. Okay. Um, I, use, I would utilize like a taxi or an Uber or something. Okay. Um, just so that I can see within my own energy. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. Um, because performing on stage for me, I, I I believe it's kind of like having sex in public. Yeah. With yourself, and everyone and everyone in the audience knows how you be yourself. Right. You know, I talk I talk to my students all the time about you know, other yeah, artists all the time students, about yeah. um how you enter a stage and how you leave a stage and and how an audience um actually reacts to that thing like everyone everything on stage is on purpose right and so if you do this amazing performance and then once everyone's clapped and you drop your shoulders as you're walking off the stage everyone sees how you actually feel about yourself um, yeah. right and so everything is exposed about you even the things that you didn't plan on exposing are exposed about you mm-hmm. and so um for me it yeah, I definitely like use Uber or travel home with friends, just a different way to move. I, I, what it offers me is confidence. Right. And so it's this confidence and self-validation in what I'm meant to do. Right. Um, it's kind of like when I performed the last, not kind of like, when I performed the last, I feel like I have you know those moments where you're like, I am meant to be right here, right now doing this. Oh yeah, that's what it feels like for me. Um, and so it's this re-self validation um, of of my offerings, mm-hmm. what I have to offer, and then what it, what I should choose to share. Mm-hmm. Um, so so that helps. I mean, I I there I don't actually feel like there there is safety for me okay okay <laughs> yeah and i mean i was i've been grappling through this for years trying to figure out how i love people mm-hmm. love um community and and the social, uh, the social aspects of people, um, and I haven't quite figured that out yet. You know, for years I called myself the, the clown, <laughs> um, and th- and then that was even before I started doing the last. But um, the reason why is because I felt like I was this highly visible person, and this highly visible person who I'm not going to say nobody because I have wonderful people in my life yeah but the people weren't really 
thinking about what was underneath it, like what was behind that. Yeah, like when people like laugh at me on the streetcar, they don't think that they're the sixth person to do that to me that day. Right. That's not like what's going through their mind. They're having this reaction to me. And I understand myself now <laughs> doing a lot of spirit work. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I present something of an existential threat yeah. to people. A lot of queer non-binary people do because we're not supposed to exist this way. Mm-hmm. Like no one is supposed to look like me and move through the world like me and be as confident as I am. Right. You know, and 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 have friendships and, and, and a marriage and, and everything that I have yeah. and, and a career. Like I'm a hired trans artist. That's like very rare, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Um, and so when people come up against me, it's like either they're like, oh, you're a reflection of everything that I understand about myself, or it's like, I don't even want to deal with what I see in front of you. It's almost like I'm a, I'm a mirror. Yeah. You know? And um, yeah, it's really, really hurtful, really painful. And there are days that I'm like, oh, I'm not going to with somebody today. I will walk. 45 minutes to wherever I need to go because I don't want to deal with feeling like crap. If I get up in the morning and I'm like, oh, I feel good about myself, and then I walk out and I get on the subway, I know that there's going to be a moment for me um, where I notice someone looking at me in a way that's dangerous. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I was doing a project recently where they were talking about opening. Open yourself. Let yourself be held. And I was like, that's all fine and good. I can do that. But what's going to happen when I leave this room in five minutes? Right. When I step outside that door and I round the corner for our lunch break and have to come back here, I actually have to deal with the world that doesn't want me to exist. Right. right? I can't actually use the bathroom anywhere else as I live in this building. I, when I walk outside, I have to change the way that I... Um, move i have to be aware of where where everything everything that's happening on the street in a way that i that other folks don't have to do yeah and then and then i have to come back and then be open right and so (laughs) yeah you know this this experience of like oh i can have a relationship with you like if we're sitting and having dinner somewhere in the restaurant um I can be fully engaged with you, having this conversation with you, yeah. but I can't allow myself to only focus there. I really have to be thinking about the exit and the person behind you, and if they hear my voice, how they respond to it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I just had a talk at York University, and they were like, you're so brave. How are you so brave? And I was like, no, I'm just here. Right. I would actually love to be soft for three years. Mm. Is that possible for me to move to the world soft? Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's like, not really. Um, and they're like, what do you mean? I was like, well, for example, if I actually wanted to use the bathroom, which I've had to do for a half an hour, where would I go? And the whole room was like, hmm. was like, so you invited me here, but not really. Yeah. Right? And so, um, and so if I can't use the bathroom, how am I supposed to be here? Like, it doesn't actually make sense. And then the bathroom is just a small, it's big, but it's a small, um, thing of the larger issue yeah, it's a digestible forum but it's yeah it's yeah it was just giving them an example that they could sort of picture in that moment yeah um and so, so that's what i feel like but i also understand that like 
I am lucky too. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of people who never got to live the way that I'm living. Sure. Um, and who and who suffer in, in more extreme ways than I do. Yeah. So, um, you know, when I was the when I realized that I was trans, um, I was sitting in an auditorium watching Laverne Cox speak mm. uh, with Kumari and Tien, and we were there for a conference. I wasn't even paying attention. I was, I was like, I'm just black, blah, 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 blah. I didn't really care. And so <laughs> I'm sitting, like, we're sitting there, and then it starts, and then she goes, I'm an African-American trans woman. And I was like, my whole body, like, felt like it was inflamed. Not in a bad way, but I was just like, what is going on? And I knew in that moment my entire life would be different. Wow. Right? And so, because I was like, here she is in front of all of us sharing her story. And there was like 400 plus people in here wanting to hear this black woman's story. <laughs> I was like, okay, yes. Then um, I was thinking about the ways that we were told that we couldn't engage with her. Like no, no physical contact or those particular things. You can only do photos on stage in this particular area during this particular amount of time because she doesn't have a life where she could actually allow people to just be any way. Yeah. Right? Um, it's not possible. And I feel like it's very similar. You know, when you're in this world and we're, um, you know, non-binary and moving through the world and having people go address us in these binary ways, and so like, oh yes, I, 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 you're, you're they, them, or she, her, but like, well, which side do you want to stand on still? Right. You know? Yeah. It's kind of like people think that it's the right thing to do now, kind of like the land acknowledgement. Yeah. You know, it's one thing to do, but we don't actually understand that land acknowledgements don't come in place for political action. Yeah. But for a lot of people, that is how large their political action is. Yeah. Um, anyway, I'm rambling now. But no, that's, no, that's, that's a connection. Nice. Yeah, I see that. Yeah. Well, that's yeah, that's true. It's just like, but I, but what I, what I also hear is that you're finding ways to protect your energy and your aura, and you're finding ways to thrive despite it all, even not to not to lessen the everyday experience of it, or the you know walking the street, the subway. Uh, people are. Yeah. Yeah, but you're finding some ways to move yeah, through. Yeah, I mean, that's the benefit of being an artist, right? A creator. Yeah. That you actually get to take these moments and um, put them in front of your face and be like, what is this? Mm. What is? What do I want to do with this? How do I want to move with this? Maybe if I perform my response, you can't always respond in public. Yeah, right? you can't. That's true. That's, that's true. true. Perform my response then maybe I can walk through the world in my response as opposed to feeling like I have to answer everyone. Yeah. You know, people are really curious. You know, I feel like um, the moments that I've, that I've stopped someone and they they were laughing, these two women were laughing at me and I was like, Hey, um, can I ask you a question? And just like, they were like, oh. <laughs> also like, that to humanize yeah. you. I was like, seriously, um, what would it feel like for you if you were by yourself as as black women traveling and there were two men who were sitting across from you laughing at you? Yeah. What like what 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 would you think about that? 
And they were like, um, would, would you feel good? Would that feel great? Would you feel safe? Would you, yeah. like, and if not, then why are you doing that? Yeah. Like, wh- why do you feel like it's okay for you to laugh at a complete stranger? You know nothing about me. God, you know yeah. nothing about my day. You don't know if, if by doing this, I will run into traffic. Like, you have no idea what yeah. your actual impact is, and yet you do it so flippantly. Yeah. Why are you laughing at a person just sitting here trying to go home? Yeah. Like I'm not, I'm not performing for you. I'm not on the stage. I was not paying attention to you. I was listening to my iPod. I didn't even look at y'all until you started laughing, and I realized it was about me. But like, what? What do you want? Want my attention? Like, what? You have a question? Like, what is it? I really have no idea why this is a thing that continues to happen. Right. They give no answers. They give you no. Yeah. Well, there is nothing. They give no answers, yeah. and that gave me an answer too. Yes. That people don't even know why they're doing it. I mean, you know, it's I, I, the thing that I sometimes think is that people are uh, so they've spent so much energy to conform to become this person that society says, and then when they see somebody who's living their life, making choices that the other person has not made, they're like, "Oh, all this energy I spent was for nothing. That's not real." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I had this experience with this black man um, on well, what I assumed to be a black man. He didn't point his identity, but. Mm-hmm. Um, he was so angry. Like, we were sitting across from each other, and I was on my way to going to do a show. And he was so angry, staring across at me. And I was just like, what is going on? Right. Like, why is he so upset? Right. Um, you know, and he stood up, and he was like, ah, people like you. And I was like, I was like would you mind elaborating? What do you mean, people like me? What do you know about people like me? What do you think that I do? Right. And he was like, well, you're just not supposed to do that. And I was like, oh, oh, but I'm supposed to march in the street for you, right? Yeah. Right? I'm like, I I was like, my job, part of my job is literally to put myself, my life on the line for you. So that you can have your life, so that you can walk through the streets with dignity. And yet, you don't let me do that. And he's like, what are you talking about? I was like, do you know what Black Lives Matter Toronto is? And he was like, oh, yeah. I was like, well, I'm part of that team. And he was like, oh. I was like, your whole demeanor just now changed. <laughs> and so why do I actually have to say that? I shouldn't have to say that yeah. in order for you to respect me as a human being within my life here. You know, and I know that it comes from this from slavery, right? It came, it came, it comes from this idea of like um, the way that we used to protect each other when we were running away from slave masters is by looking out, mm. right? Like, like, don't go over there; it's going to be dangerous. Right. If you wear that thing, it's going to be too visible. Right. And so, like, that there's something deep down is happening for them where they're like, "You're not supposed to do that. Like, you're too visible." Yeah. Right, and so part of it is that they want me to be safe, but they also make me unsafe. It's this really strange, yeah, you know, thing. If people respected a bit more, then maybe they would figure that out. Ugh. But that's I realized over time. It's like actually, people are angry with me because they feel like they're supposed to be. They're not actually angry. Yeah, they don't. They they don't actually want to know me. They don't actually want my attention. They just feel like that's their duty. It's my duty to tell you that what you're doing is wrong. 
Oh God. Yeah. I mean, it's so, none of that is really as a person about you, but it impacts you and it shapes Absolutely. your life. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Um, when you weren't feeling great, you're walking through your street and you're like, oh, today was a crappy day. Mm-hmm. Blah, 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 blah. And you come across that person, you're like, whoa. Yeah. What the hell? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that, because, yeah, I was going to ask you about your collective member in Black Lives Matter Toronto. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that question paints a light for me because, you know, I think um, I'm going to throw back to a moment uh, in 2016, which was. Um, you know, in response to the deaths and the lack of accountability at the hands of the police, you know, specifically in the cases of Andrew Loku and Jermaine Carby, there was like a series of actions that kind of ultimately took the shape of Ten City, uh, which yes. was this like in three week encampment, ended up being three weeks, uh, mm-hmm. which was led by BLM Toronto uh, outside Toronto mm-hmm. Police headquarters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was like, I think it was like this time of year, it was like March, and it, but it was snowing. Yeah, it was very cold. Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, what a time that was and uh yeah. Yeah, after the encampment wrapped up um you know there was like this big community meeting largely for black folks but there was like a wrap-up um kind of closing ceremony and mm-hmm. um for anyone who helped out with the work and, and i remember it was like at university of toronto theater and uh at that time you know you came i remember you coming up to the front uh of the stage and you you were talking about using your voice and you said that even though you were a performer who's been seen on stages, you had a very fraught relationship with your own voice. And uh, I remember that you sang for all of us, like a theater full of people, and it was beautiful. And and, 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 and yeah, I did. Yeah, I remember that. Uh, and so, so, so tell me about the trajectory of your relationship to your voice and what inspired that moment of claiming your voice. Wow. Okay. In twenty twelve. Marisian and I created this called Fire, mm-hmm. a work called Fire, and um, dealing, and it was about oppression, dealing with different kinds of oppression that we each face, but also experience quite differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I was, and it was basically like three solo narratives that were weaved in the future. Mm-hmm. And so my my solo nar- narrative largely focused on being quarantined. <laughs> um, feeling like I was uh, dangerous mm. um, in all the ways, like in in terms of like getting on an elevator with a parent and their kid, and then they pull the kid closer to them because they they see this very queer looking being, and they're like, "Oh no, no, no! Don't look at that!" Mm-hmm. You know, um, for example. And so I just felt like, and as a dancer. Um, our voices are never really valued and they're often quite shut down. We're not really allowed to have a voice. We, we have to be a vessel for someone else's idea, you know, which is yeah. problematic considering how many people, how many problematic people there are in dancing performance. Yeah. <laughs> to be their vessels anyway. Um, so I was like, you know what? How am I going to tell my story? I don't want to speak on stage because I, I've had this long-standing thing where people are cool with me until they hear my voice. Mm. Um, when I was younger, uh, from like four years old all the way up, um, I would speak and people were like, that's what you always sound like? And there was always this huge, awful reaction um, to it. Um, I, I didn't hate my voice. 
I sound like my mother and I loved her voice. So it was like, for me, I was like, this is strange. People are cool with my mother's voice. Why are they not okay with mine? Like, it yeah. just didn't make sense to me. Um, but it did give me pause. So whenever I'm in a room for the first time, I don't speak unless I understand the whole, like, everyone who speaks will have the mixed space for what my voice sounds like. Interesting. Um, and so that, so I sang because I've always wanted to do musicals and I've always wanted to do, to, to perform that way. Um, and I actually felt more comfortable singing than speaking. Mm. Um, and if I sang somebody else's song, they wouldn't have to say my own words. Right. And so in that work, even though if I was doing a self narrative, I used all the words from other artists other female artists mm. um and so that process actually forced me to figure out um my relationship to my voice how i felt about it what what the way that i was um well hating around it too mm -hmm. um but it was blm actually joining blm to um forced me to figure out how to speak publicly, mm. uh, clearly within 20 seconds. All right. Right. It's like, so I'm like, oh, I have to get my point across to you in 30 seconds. I'm a radio person, so I like to talk in like these loopy loop circles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but in terms of that work, like I really have to get quicker with my response. Um, and not just quicker with my response, but, but figure out a way to relay information to people so they would get it. Mm -hmm. And so I was I, I was asked to do a keynote for a high school student. Okay. It was 15. And I brought my friend Shadrach because <laughs> I was like, we're gonna do a little song first to like, break the ice. Yeah. But I really didn't think about it. I really I wore this outfit that I was kicking myself for after as soon as I stepped on stage. I love the outfit and it's, a, it's an Adidas, Adidas onesie. It's very, very tight. It's awesome. <laughs> I walked on stage and all of them were like, <gasps> and I was like, oh shit, I made a mistake. Right. Because I was so confident in what and who I was in that moment. I wasn't interacting with anyone. I was pretty much in my own space that I was like, oh, I forgot them around kids. Right. Right. <laughs> Ooh, are having fed all these different narratives so that maybe they won't even unlearn in their lifetime. Hopefully yeah. a lot of them will. Right. But you know, it's different in high school. Mm -hmm. So when I started speaking, giggle. Mm. You know, and I was like, so I noticed that you find me funny. Mm. I noticed that um, the side of me makes you laugh. Um, which means, which tells me something about that you have the capacity to actually be empathetic. So I'm not actually here to talk about myself. I'm not actually here for you to like me. Um, I'm not interested in any of that. I'm actually here to tell you about Black Lives Matter Toronto and why we exist. Wow. Right? And we, and we exist at a time that I wish we didn't have to. Right. I was like, how, I was like, how many of you are 12? 
no one answered there. No one picked. I was like 13, 14, some hands. I was like, okay, 14-year-olds, yeah. 15-year-olds. Okay, imagine this. Imagine you're on your way to a grocery store. I basically shared um, what happens to Trayvon Martin as if it were all of them. And I was like, this is why I'm here. And so your laughter to me, it's not necessarily wrong, but it's insensitive after you know why I'm here, right? Right. Maybe the next time someone comes in front of you who you don't understand, you'll wait to hear what they have to say first. Right. You know, maybe, maybe you will allow them to, to share with you. Mm-hmm. You know, and then afterwards, everyone came up to me. They wanted to take photos. It was right. a whole situation. You know what right. I mean? So, um, speaking at universities and all these things that I never actually thought I was going to do because I skipped the university route. <laughs> right. Um, but then I'm talking to criminology classes and I'm like, what am I doing in here? But anyway. <laughs> yeah, um, they need it. Yeah. But that, that's, what, that's what it is. Like I was like, oh, I actually, I know what I want to say. I'm, I'm pretty good at articulating myself. I just didn't have a lot of confidence in it. Mm. You know? Um, and so it was building that. So a lot largely due to my relationship with BLM is, is why... I've gotten better at accepting my voice. I'm also training with Shy Wisdom, my vocal coach. Wow, yeah. Um, an artist here in, in Toronto, Toronto um, R&B, soul, great. Um, yeah, amazing. And in, in our second session, we were, I was like, oh, I'm going to explore my range. And then she was like, oh, well, that means you're actually going to have to sing louder. And I was like, oh, uh... No, 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 no. Um, I have a soft voice. Like, I'm, and she's like, no, I think you, your voice is too loud. I think you don't use it the way you could. But in order to hit the note that, that you want to hit, you're going to have to sing louder. I was like, hmm. Okay. So each week has been pushing me to sing with a person who is like, I don't know, right in front of me. Right. <laughs> you know, in 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 a basement in her um grandfather's barbershop. But it's like I was like, wow, there's so much about my voice that I've like compressed and compacted into this digestible um thing. Uh-huh. Um and so like yeah, doing I'm doing the work of my voice now with like singing and speaking more and doing that. And podcasts and things like that. Yes, yes. And I'm so grateful because, you know, I, what I hear, and there's a connection to our first question, which is I what I heard, especially in that interview with, uh, when you were talking to those kids in the high school, was that you treated a situation that was hard with so much grace that it transformed mm-hmm. everybody, you mm-hmm. know, that it transformed mm-hmm. their response to you and they transformed the moment um, mm-hmm. that maybe, you know, you, you led with your grace, which is, I think, just mm-hmm. so powerful sometimes. Um I have a few more, I mean, shifting gears a little bit. Um, one thing you and I share uh, is that we both lost a parent, um, yeah. our moms. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, that's kind of a huge moment in a person's life. You know, it's, of course, the sharpness of grief ebbs and flows, uh, but it's transformative. It shapes you. Uh, how has grief shaped you? Ooh. <laughs> um... We're diving deep. 
I'm good with that. I'm a Virgo. Let's do it. Let's do it. But I am. I I just passed the sixth year anniversary of my of my mom, which felt weird, mm-hmm. really really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, because for me, it it doesn't feel like six years. Right. You know, like time changed for me. Yeah. <laughs> with that, like it, it, I felt like. I wanted the world to stop and it didn't. Yeah. You know, I still had to show up for work. Like, I still had to be one. Like, I still had to be a partner and a friend to people. And I was just like, my, uh, my, you know, <laughs> this is not the same. And not everybody has the same relationship to their mothers. Yeah. Right. Or, you know, other caregivers. But, you know, I didn't even realize how much. I depended on her and, and, and not depending on her in any way of like to live, but it was like everything that I was doing before she passed away, mm-hmm. wise, it was a conversation with her and I didn't realize it. Yeah. I didn't realize I was literally having a conversation with my mother that entire time about the things that I wanted to be, the things that I wanted to do, the things that I was told I was not supposed to be, do shame and guilt and yeah hurt and betrayal and all those all those things that happens in a relationship uh like that um yeah i was so sad i'm still sad yeah. i think every, every day every day i have a moment where i'm like where's my mom yeah <laughs> you know and you know the hardest moments are actually when i have um, things to celebrate yeah you know, when it's like, oh, I just did this thing. Like, I got this job to go to Paris. Like, what? Like, I wish I could just call my mom and be like, hey, this happened today. But I'm like, I can't do that in the same way. Like, I have a spiritual relationship with my mother. That's really beautiful. Um, but I miss not being able to do that. You know, there are all these movies that are coming out. And this sounds, you know, whatever. We watched a lot of movies together mm-hmm. growing up. Um, she and I was like, oh, I wish I could have talked about Black Panther with her. Right. You know, I wish I could have talked about the Exonerated Five with her. Like, right. you know, she was in the states when that happened. You know, we were babies, so I'm just like, what? You know, these conversations that I that I don't get to have in these particular ways, they bring like massive amounts of grief. Like, I, I I've always described um my days or my life past my mom passing away as like a kind of like a birthday cake there are all these layers there's this underground layer that's kind of cool there's a top layer that's great and delicious there's this murky area that just feels shitty yeah you know there's never going to be a day that i don't feel shitty about that um and then there's the life that i'm living yeah because i'm here, right and so it's like actually i'm learning to live with grief as opposed to pushing it out yeah. or getting rid of it or treating it like it's a cold and it's supposed to be for a week. Right. Um, because that, what I realized that I didn't have skills to do with food. Like, I don't, don't get feel taught. like in, in society we're even taught how to hold each other in grief. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, can you grieve in public? Like, is it okay for me to show up to a thing and be really fucking sad? Like, you don't feel like that's a possibility, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and so, and, and because of who I believe that I was in the community, like I have this 
particular kind of status, like I couldn't show up completely shattered. Mm-hmm. You know, even though that's what I felt like. Mm-hmm. Um, so what grief has taught me, it's like, you know, I, I say this often, like grief is the type of love. Yeah. You know, it's just the, it's just the gift of it. You know, it's like you are ungrateful that I miss her. Not everybody does. Mr. Right. Parents, parents like that, you know, yeah, yeah. that I have that I have memories and photos and um and she gave me so so much um life lessons yeah. that I'm still that I'm still um understanding now. Right. Moving thirty five. Um yeah, I mean grief has taught me about friends relationships um like value right. <laughs> um i lost my mom and then a year a year after i lost my best friend um, um wow yeah and you know they're different because my best friend is my one of my everydays you know, and, right. and he was like, what is going on with my life? Um, so it was pretty rough, like, to, to, and I, and honestly, like, I don't even feel like I've, I've, I've gone into that grief at all. Mm. Um, yeah, at all. Wow. Um, yeah. yeah. I feel like that's sort of maybe the next phase of my life, figuring out that, that space and that friendship grief. Um, it reminds me of right now, the pandemic we're going through right now. Mm-hmm. How like people are who are dying, literally. Yeah. Um. And and our first world readiness of toilet paper and hand sanitizer. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's like I guess it was a real thing, but I'm like, where was this outrage? And the people of Palestine are like, we can't go to school. Like, I don't, I don't understand yeah. how. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like this has been happening. What happened to the Ebola crisis in Africa? Like, we there's this way that. Um, yeah. Now that white folks are affected too, I'll just say it. Like now that that's a thing, now it's a pandemic. Now we got to figure out. Now everyone stays home. Now everybody's got to figure out how to send money to folks. And then, I'm not against any of those things and doing those things, but it's just like the value of life becomes more apparent after grief. Yeah. You know, you're just like, oh, I'm not dealing with that shit no more. <laughs> I'm not doing it. I feel you. You get really clear with your energy too. You know, that's a benefit. I'm like, oh, I'm not doing this. I'm not doing that. Oh, you want me to do this for a job? No. You know, I just had a situation with a job that I was working with um, where they wanted to put me in a bathing suit mm. on stage. And I was like, I'm cool with a bathing suit if everybody else is in one. Right. And like, well, everyone will be in one. I was like, okay, well, mine turned into a thong after doing this, this work. And I'm not opposed to being in a thong. However, it's not part of the world that we're creating in this piece. And my black body doesn't get to be abstract. Right. Right. So how are we going to fix it? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If you want to fix it, then I walk. 
for example. Like I don't yeah. make space for the things I made space for before it. Right. Um, that feel ridiculous or dehumanizing or anything, anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I can relate to that a lot. We just like, there's like a thing that you're just like, well, I just can't have energy for this anymore. There's, there, grief has taken up energy. I can't have energy for you. You know? No, no. Um, no, it, it just washes away the the busyness. You know, when you, when you boil it down. And that, my, my best friend, she died in front of me. Um, and, and there's, you know, in indigenous culture, death is, 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 is also a beautiful thing. Mm. It's also something that is a gift. Mm-hmm. And so, when when you're on your your deathbed, and the people who are surrounding you are a reflection of the life you live, mm. you know. And and so, sitting there with my friend and seeing the people who were around her bedside, I was like, that that's it. Like I. I'm focusing on this career thing or this thing or this thing, but really it's my relationships that I value. You know, it's it's my, my friendship relationship. I don't care if we're not working on this project together anymore, whatever. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's like there's um, more clarity around the people that I want to make sure they're okay. Yeah. You know, checking with them and, and, and all that kind of stuff. So yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I answered the question. <laughs> right, right, right. I mean, and going on, going further on that, it's like, what, what are, what are some things you stay grounded in to keep going? Like, what, how do you spiritually sustain yourself? Mm. I watch a lot of Janet Jackson. Amazing. Um, That's a church. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I tell you something. When I, when I added to my name. Raven and Um That year, Janet was coming to Toronto, and I went to her concert. Whoa. And um, I splurged that year. I was in the one in the front, the third row. Whoa. Um, I'm gonna see her up close. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> so we. So as I'm walking in to the auditorium, um, there's a there's a figure a figure on stage, just like a. a a white sheet mm-hmm. and uh, it looks like her it looks like a um an image of her mm-hmm. but i thought it was a photo and so we're walking in and it's like exactly when the concert said it would start and so we're walking in and i was like oh that looks like Janet. that's like a really good photo like a really good image right and the sheet lifts and it's literally her whoa and then afterwards it's like black birds flew everywhere in the, because um, you had all these screens everywhere. Right. It was like the eagle that turned into all these ravens. Oh, wow. Wow. You're connected. And I was just like, well, shoot. <laughs> did that just for you. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I feel like there's this, this definite connection that I have with, her and um and that's what i do like i look to the people who inspire me the angela bassett the you know show me how to yummy you know even people in my community like kumari like people who who have 
and do spark um, creation in life and offering. Yeah. Um, there's just so many ways to see myself uh, fulfilled and sustained. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm singing now, which is really helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's, it's like I, I'm, I'm writing an album that too oh whoa, <laughs> amazing. Album, but part of part of that is 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 sound healing um mm, yeah and focusing on on how to i don't know clear myself out a little bit i i, I want a lot of clarity i'm moving into 36 this year whoa and, um yeah I, I, I'm, I'm excited about it like i'm ready for this next stage of my life moving into the 40s and who I will be, and so so I'm really just preparing myself for the abundance. You know, I've been asking for a long time in scarcity for what I wanted. Right. Oh, I want money. Oh, I want this. Oh, I want this. All in my scarcity, and I got it all, just right. like I asked for it. Right. And that's why it felt like this like onslaught of like <laughs> all this abundance it was like, well, that's how you asked for it. Then we're gonna just gonna throw it at you, right? Yeah. And so I'm like, actually, I didn't prepare myself for what I was asking for. You know, I didn't, I, um, when I said, you know, I want to show up in public, you know, and then the next, the week after I got a call, I was like, hey, why don't you do this piece? It's a, you know, an art installation where you're going to be running naked on the treadmill. And I was like, uh-huh. <laughs> You know, so I feel like the universe and I um, are really very interconnected, and and my what I want and what I need for myself is is also. Um, I hope it doesn't sound like too much of an ego, but it's also part of what she needs me to do. Yeah. You know, here, like I, I feel like this time period is interesting. I've been talking to a couple of different uh, magical friends about. The return of magic. Mm. We're like 2020 is the return of magic. It's the return of of Mother Earth. And so it feels like Mother Earth, Mother Nature, and Sky Mother are all like, hey, y'all, you weren't paying attention. We gave y'all time. Yeah. Here it is. Focus. Yep. Shut you everything know? down. Yeah. Mother, understand what's happening. Uh, you know, it's like I was. I've been thinking about, you know, Turtle Island and how big it actually is. Mm-hmm. You know, it extends to the Gulf of Mexico. It's like the heart is in Peru. Like, we're just so much more connected. Um, even in landmass. Um, and so how, how do we remember that after this is over? That's what I'm interested in. After this is over and you realize that capitalism wasn't working, doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, the mm-hmm. universal income is as important, and that Andrew Yang wasn't an idiot for putting that out there for the presidential right. election. Right. I'm just saying, you know, that now everyone is like, well, what are we going to do? And the government actually has enough money to take care of every person in this country. They do, yeah. Actually, you know what I mean? Like, just don't. I mean, like, well, why don't you? I mean, like, what are all your weapons mm-hmm. doing? Are they helping? Right? Are they? Are no? They're not. They're they're helping your cause because that's how capitalism works. Yeah. Right. Capitalism works because you always understand that there's something more you can have. Yeah. Right. But it's like if we 
if we go, go back to the understandings of indigenous teachings, the African teachings of, of people being currency, like we are our currency, like we are the thing that can keep us alive and, and healthy and um, connected and together, then why are we doing that? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's like every, all the artists were, were like, hey, are we paying attention to climate change? Like 30 years ago. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And now when this epic pandemic comes, then they're like, okay, now it's time to wash your hands. Now it's time to think about the ways we're right. interacting with each other. Now let's shut down this. And it's like, y'all, you wait until this moment and then people have to die because of your ridiculousness, you know? Yeah. Because your inability to actually change and understand um, that money isn't real. So not real, yeah. You know, it's like, what do you mean? Like, money actually isn't real, <laughs> and and so yeah. the way that we hold it, we really place value on it, and and ourselves based on whether we have it or not, um, whether or not we make enough of it or not, whether or not we give enough to society to be important enough, yeah, to influence um, yeah. how policy is coming to place, you know. Thinking a lot about that, thinking about the, the judges who I've met with in the past couple of years who who were doing reviews of the indigenous women, missing indigenous women, and they're like, so what do we do? How do we do it? And it's like, you have more power than me. Mm-hmm. You can actually do something about it. You know, mm-hmm. you can actually make a difference. Um, and maybe it's because they're people of color, right? That there's this, we, we understand how to dream. We know that, yeah. It's the power we have to hold on to. You know, we have to create our science fiction in order, in order for us to actually live here now. Yeah. Um, you know, so anyway, I don't know. We went somewhere else, but I'm just... That's, no, that's, that's all a thing. That's all a thread that connects. Um, okay, I know it's been a, it's been a long conversation, but I'm going to wrap it up with this last question. Okay. What is a question that you've been waiting to ask, but don't really get asked? Like, what do you want to express into the world? Oh wow! It's huh. a question I've been waiting to ask. You asked it already. I did before we, before we started. I think that when when people in the world appear strong, mm. people don't check on them as much. Right. You know, people like when when you're like, oh, that's my strong friend. I'm going to check on all the other people first, and then get to the strong friend. And mm. so, strong friend. Uh, not to say that I'm stronger than anyone else, but just viewed that yeah, way. Yeah. Um, it's very rare to get like, "Are you okay? Mm. Like, how are you doing? Mm. Um, like, what? What do you need? What is, you know? Yeah, just like as an artist, the, the truth is. <laughs> My my whole goal is for, for people to recognize my humanity. Yeah. And um but it's bizarre because the more popular become popular I become. And it's weird to be popular for BLM because that's not why I'm doing it. But anyway. It's a counterintuitive. But the more popular we become, the harder it is actually to have that. Right. You know, 
But yeah, at least something that's it. I feel, I feel like, you know, when in this time period, I'm just recognizing what I offer to mm-hmm. folks and also what they offer to me and then what they don't. <laughs> right. So it's just a lot of clarity, you know. So yeah, that, that, that first question you asked me, like, how are you doing right now? Mm-hmm. Is, is pretty much what never really gets asked. To me, mm. um, been doing like interviews or, or talks, or like not really, not in the way that people actually want to know how I'm doing. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, like, oh, how are you? But they don't. They're like, hey, how you doing? And they keep walking. They're not actually interested in like what that is, you know? Right, right. Um, and so yeah, like right now, to, um, to answer my question, how yeah, I'm doing, I was going to ask I anyway if you didn't answer it. <laughs> um I am a kind of terrified and hopeful. And part of it is like I'm hopeful because I I see I'm seeing all the ways that that artists help save the world. Mm-hmm. We say it a lot, but we don't actually but there but the acknowledgement of it isn't always there. Right. Um, you know, we're, we're I, I, this is capitalistic, but we're not given what the basketball players are given for their entertainment. Yeah, it's true. Like yesterday, I was looking at Facebook, and it is devastating to look through. Um, and I was just like, "Oh my goodness!" Like, yes, I want the information. Yes, I want the news, but but it's overwhelming. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I saw. Um, Kumari is doing a Facebook Live. And I was like, what? And then I was watching Kumari cook for a while. And then I was like, there are all these other Facebook Lives, people cooking, people dancing with their brooms, um, families doing like TikToks or whatever. People like Catherine Hernandez is doing story time for kids. And I was like, this is, this is beautiful. Yeah. You know, and I hate that it came to this sort of, for that to be highlighted this way. Yeah. But that's, I really appreciate everything that everyone is doing in order to like keep everyone like motivated and okay and um, seen and, and entertained. Um, yeah. So that's, that's sort of, you know, we, we we're, we're not treated that well artists. Yeah. Or, or when we when we say to our parents like this is what I'm going to do, it's not always so awesome. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, yes. But at a time like this, it's like it, the value of it is actually more seen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I hope that that you know this is over soon. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I also hope that like um, we'll have a newfound respect for everyone in a, in a really different way. Yeah. You know, we won't actually stop taking care of our elders and our young kids and each other and our trans folks and uh, non-binary folks who actually like thinking about that on a long-term basis and how and how we shift, you know, the get back to business sort of model that everyone is trying to get back to busyness. Yeah. You know, yeah. everyone's like, oh, I want to be busy. I'm like, really? You 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 don't you don't want the rest? Oh okay. 
resting you know, is hard. You want to like sit and think about your people and how to help folks, and you know you have more time to actually take care of yourself. So you have more time to take care of everybody else. Yeah. You know, the benefits. You get yeah. to sleep. You know, what if you got to sleep a little? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm I am well slept. Yeah. I'm like, okay, now what? <laughs> <laughs> But we don't get that opportunity to reset, yeah. Right, yeah, you know. I mean, I and then it's like one of those things where I was just like, wow, the, I didn't even realize how tired I was. Right. I kind of knew, but I didn't really know. Right. I mean, I can sleep for 24 hours and still need sleep. What was I doing to myself? Right, right. You know, it's just like like the idea of health um, really is, is, is in front of my brain right now. Right. About the way that, you know, cap- capitalism is um, disabling. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. And that's that's the contradiction of the fear and the hopefulness all existing together. Because mm-hmm. We're in this moment that kind of brings everything to the forefront. It brings the worst of us and the best of us together. Um, yeah. 100%. Thank you so much, Raven. I know we've gone for a long time, but I really, really appreciate this conversation. It was uh, I. Thank you. Thank you. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Okay. Uh, congratulations on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. I'm excited to continue to listen. Thank you. Because I have time. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. That was our guest, Raven Aria Wings. I want to once again thank Raven for her grace, brilliance, and generous offering. Um, the music in this episode is by incredible Toronto bands Pantayo and Lal. Please check out their albums on Bandcamp. You can follow us on Instagram at Possibilities Podcast. As I mentioned in the opening, we have a Patreon page. It's called patreon.com slash possibilities podcast. We are an independent podcast and your support at whatever level is possible for you would be hugely impactful for us. And also, as mentioned in the opening, a portion of our funds will go directly to Raven. This episode was edited by Mari Ramsavak and it was produced by Komari Giles. I am your host, Among Antarik Sagar. Thank you so much for listening. I'm really grateful for your time. Thank you.